All right, tonight we begin a new study through the book of First Samuel. If you'll turn there with me in the Old Testament, we finished Ruth last time. Tonight we carry on in our study through the scriptures in First Samuel, a new book of the Bible. And I'll tell you, as you uh, look forward to another new book study, it's always kind of exciting to begin a new book in the Bible and certainly some really great lessons ahead of us here. Anybody here ever kind of have a desire to know that you're hearing the voice of God? Anybody ever said, well, I wish I could know God's voice is like and know I'm hearing from the Lord? Well, First Samuel will answer that question for us. Sometimes we wonder, well, what is it truly like to see revival or experience revival? I hope you have an interest in that. And First Samuel gives us some indications in regards to that. Uh, what's it like when the Lord puts his calling upon our lives and to know that we're genuinely called of the Lord rather than just being someone who's promoting ourselves or trying to push our way into some position or form of service. Well, First Samuel shows us that, the distinction between uh, the call of God and some of those things and how when we are truly allowed the opportunity to serve the Lord, how to be faithful and humble in the process and remain usable rather than having to be set aside as Saul will ultimately see will be as comparison to David who is a man after God's own heart and someone who had a right heart and remained usable for the Lord. Uh, anybody ever have any giants in your life and things that you feel like, boy, th this just seems overwhelming and how am I going to conquer this? Well, uh, David and Goliath, that famous story most of us know of, shows up here in First Samuel and we'll see how God takes care of the giants in our lives and deals with the battles that are too big for us and the things that we can't handle in our lives and as well just lessons about camaraderie and friendship and just a lot of beautiful wonderful truths weave throughout this book the, the book of first Samuel another one of the historical books in the Old Testament really records the history of Israel during a time of transition a time of change. And, and by transition, what we'll see is it's a transition from the period of the judges now to a time when we see a period of Israel's kings. Uh, it focuses really on three main figures and all three of these men, predominantly they're the main characters, they're all interconnected relationally, we'll see. The three main figures we'll see, of course, is Samuel, who the book is named after, Saul, and then David. And Samuel was a godly man, a special prophet, and we'll see that he's sort of the last judge in the time period of the judges in Israel's history. Then Saul will be Israel's first king, and he, unfortunately, is the king according to what the people wanted. He wasn't really what God desired or what God would have selected, but he becomes the first king that is allowed to reign in the monarchy of Israel, but he is someone that the people aspired for and longed after. He was like all the other worldly kings, tall, dark, handsome, charismatic, talented, experienced. He could certainly woo any crowd, but yet he had no character. And because he had no character, he had a lot of charisma, but because he had no character, ultimately, he deteriorated rather quickly and he failed miserably and started out well, 
but came crashing down because his condition of his heart was never in the right place. And then, of course, thirdly, we find David, and David becomes God's choice for a king. He's the ruler that the Lord selected, and God selected much differently. David, it seems, didn't have a lot of the attributes that Saul had, but one thing that David had was David had a heart that was after the Lord. David had character. And God built his character even after he was anointed king of Israel. God then shaped and molded and crafted and constructed David's character as he put David through a series of circumstances and events so that he would be a shepherd king, a king after God's own heart and a shepherd king that really emulated and pictured Jesus. And of course, we know the messianic line then comes through David's family as Jesus becomes the ultimate son of David. So it kind of overlaps the time period of the judges as we begin 1 Samuel. It's a dark time morally, a dark time spiritually. Remember, judges was a time when the Bible says there was no king and every man was just doing what was right in his own eyes. And this is kind of the time frame historically that 1 Samuel picks up with. And let me just say in regards to Samuel himself, and we begin to see his life displayed in these first few chapters, Samuel is a man identified in Scripture who really very little is said about negatively. And the Bible is very honest. It's a very transparent book. Even David his failures, his mistakes are recorded openly for us. God shows that even the best of men are just men at best. Peter, great man of the Lord, but the Bible records his failures. Moses, godly man, servant of the Lord, but the Bible is very open about his failures and mistakes. Abraham, others in the scripture. But yet Samuel is one of these men that the Bible holds before us that we really don't have a lot said about him in a negative light. That doesn't mean he was a perfect man by any sense of the word, but what we do find, men like Joseph, men like Samuel, these are men the Bible puts before us who are extremely godly men. I mean, Samuel ranks up there with one of the spiritual giants, if you would, in the scripture. He started serving the Lord at a very young age, we'll see, and this guy never wavered until death. He ran his course he stayed in his lane. He may not have had a lot of flash and things that some of the others do. He may not even be as famous as a David or an Isaiah or a Peter or a Paul. But Samuel ran his race well. And from God's estimation, he was a spiritual giant. He was used by the Lord historically to bring about a spiritual renewal in his nation at the time. And he brought back spiritual stability to the things of the Lord that the people had wavered from by bringing consistency of what was righteous and holy and pleasing to the Lord. He's a man who heard from God, and he was a man who, when he spoke, he spoke as the Lord leading him and communicated things from the heart of God to people and had a great spiritual influence on many lives during his life and his ministry. So a great character even as a lesson for us to learn from. So let's begin here in verse 1 as we... Start out first, Samuel tells us beginning at this point, kind of the background of Samuel's parents who ultimately gave birth to him. We start with that. It says, now there was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. So this would be the father of Samuel, we'll see, Elkanah. And it gives us a bit of Elkanah's lineage. He was the son of Jerurim, son of Elihu the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, 
an Ephraimite. Now that brief lineage there tells us a few things. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, that indicates to us the lineage of Elkanah, who was the father of Samuel. His lineage we see from 1 Chronicles 6, if you study, it shows us that he is a direct descendant from the Levitical family or from the Levites that he would be in that line. So as it says here, he's an Ephraimite. What it's more indicating probably is that he lived, as the description is given to us geographically of the territory, he lived in one of the Levitical cities among the tribe of Ephraim. But he actually was descended from the Levitical people, which means he was one of those who could have been active in the service of the house of God even possibly be in the line of the priesthood as well as he descended from the line of Levi. And we'll see Elkanah, Samuel's father and Samuel's mother. I mean, these individuals that raised this young man who was a powerful instrument of the Lord, they were very godly parents, very, very godly people. Elkanah is held out here in chapter one as an extremely godly man. Yes, we do see one flaw. We see a very glaring mistake that he made, which we see in the very next verse where he took a second wife to himself. And certainly that was outside of God's design. But other than that one kind of flaw that's given to us, this was a man who served the Lord, worshiped the Lord, raised a godly family in the things that he did and really is predominantly set forth as a real man of God. And no wonder he raised ultimately the son, him and his wife, that they did. So look with me in verse 2. It says, he then had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. She will ultimately become the mother of Samuel. And the name of Elkanah's other wife was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, and we'll see it was many children she had, but Hannah had no children. So here we see, as we have on other occasions and do in the Bible, a man who is a man of God. However, we see the practice here of polygamy, taking of two wives. Now, again, every time we see this in the Bible, it's important we always remember this is not God's will. It's not God's design. We see God's design for the marriage institution in Genesis chapter 2, which, lo and behold, there's a deep insight, comes right before Genesis chapter 3, which is where sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden. The only institution we have, always, always remember this, ladies and gentlemen, the only institution we have from the other side of sin entering into the world is the marriage relationship, which goes to remind us again how sacred, how important, how fundamental that in its design, what it's intended to be, one male, one female in a lifelong relationship living together because they're compatible in every way biologically, emotionally, physically, in every way that they would function together, a male and a female as a husband and a wife. This is God's design and it's what's given to us prior to sin entering the world. And ever since we've been messing with things and all the more recently marring things that God originally intended for us. And God's original design was one man and one woman. However, we do know historically, even the Bible is, again, very honest. It does not hide and try and cover things up for us that it was at times practiced. It wasn't the norm, but at times it was practiced culturally, especially among the pagan cultures of the ancient world. But it does not mean that God ever approved it. It does not mean God endorsed it or that God condoned it. 
we have to always remember when we read the Bible, the Bible is giving to us at times a record of things. So God is honestly recording something, but just because God records something in the word of God doesn't mean God endorses it. We have to be very careful. People read the Bible and say, well, that's in the Bible. Well, yeah, of course it's in the Bible. It's recorded, but it doesn't mean God condones it. It doesn't mean God endorsed it. People's failures, people's sins, people's rebellion and evil, these are all things recorded at times in Scripture. But just because something's recorded does not indicate that God condones it or that God endorses it. We have to study things in context, and we know God's will for marriage is one man and one woman. So the fact that Elkanah took a second wife, that is contrary to the plan of God. That's contrary to the will of God. And every time we see a man, and I encourage you, study this out. Every time you see a man having multiple wives in the Bible, you can always put equal sign and then the next word, trouble. Problems. It never works. Whether it's taking two wives, whether it's... Anytime more than one wife is taken to himself in the Bible, in every family where that exists that we have recorded in the Scripture, there are always problems. There are always issues and difficulties and there's heartache and strife and negative consequences and hurt people and difficulties because it's outside of God's design. And listen, whenever we go outside of God's design or will for anything, be that as it may, there's always going to be heartache and it never works. It never works. It always ends up backfiring and breaking down because God's design and boundaries are best. And here, probably, again, I can only speculate, but probably what took place in the situation, as we read here in verse 2, that Elkanah's two wives, that Peninnah had children and Hannah had no children, and we'll see later down that there was a real love affection that existed between Elkanah and his wife Hannah. And very likely what happened, again, we can't be dogmatic here, is that Hannah was the love of his life and probably his first wife. I'm 50-50 there. I could be wrong. He only has two. It's very likely Hannah was his first wife. And then because she could not bear children, because she was struggling with infertility and barrenness. And in that culture, remember, children and the ability to have children was huge. It was the deepest dream and almost the highest importance to a married couple to be able to raise up an heir, and particularly a male heir, to carry on the family name. This was very, very important to the Hebrew culture and to many of the ancient civilizations. So to not be able to have a child was a huge, huge difficulty, and it's very likely because Hannah was struggling with infertility that this is where the compromise came in Elkanah's life. And like Abraham with Hagar, that he then decided to take to himself a second wife, Peninnah, to try and raise up children to have a heritage. Now, again, was it a mistake? Yes, Elkanah should have trusted and waited upon the Lord and let God do what God wanted to do in his timing. But it seems he made a concession. He compromised and instead took matters into his own hand, marries a second wife, Peninnah, and she becomes quite prolific having multiple children. But look at the pain and problems that result as well. Verse 3, it says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, we'll see more of them in the chapters to come, priests of the Lord were there. So 
We learn something about Elkanah. Again, as I said, this man was truly a, a very dedicated and godly man. And not just himself personally. It says that yearly at the time of the sacrifices, he would go up to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice the Lord there in Shiloh. Now, Shiloh, remember, was where the tabernacle or that tent-like structure, remember, that we saw in prior books of the Old Testament, that was sort of the portable house of worship where they would set up and then take back down and wherever they moved around as they traveled, they would have sort of a, a mobile house of worship. They would set it up. And, and the tabernacle, we know, under Joshua's time of leadership, was set up, it seems, somewhat permanently in Shiloh. Uh, and ultimately, of course, the temple we know then is built and, and established permanently in Jerusalem where God wanted to be. So Shiloh is about 15 miles from where Elkanah is living at. But every year at the time of the sacrifices, the primary sacrificial feast, and we know there were three mandatory feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the males, 20 years old and older, were required to be at the house of the Lord to honor those three feasts and to remember the Lord and to gather with the people of God to worship. Now, it was not mandated or required that their families would be with them. It was encouraged. It was recommended, but it was required that the males as the leaders of their home, the spiritual representatives, the idea was even if the rest of the family doesn't go, you go to the house of the Lord and worship. And they were supposed to be there because they were supposed to take the lead in the family. So if anybody needed three times a year to be there in God's presence, hear God's word, be encouraged in the things of the Lord, God wanted the males there for that so they could then effectively lead their families. So they could be the pastors and the shepherds and the leaders in their home. So Elkanah, the Bible tells us here, he went up yearly during these feasts to worship and to sacrifice the Lord. Now, we're going to see this man, as I said, not only went up himself, but we'll see he took his family with him, which means he went above and beyond. Again, indicating again, as I said, that this man was really a strong spiritual leader, a godly man, teaching by his life and teaching by his example. He went to the house of the Lord and we see he brought his family along with them, making sure that they were with him as he worshiped the Lord. Well, it says as he went up those times during the year, look what happens, verse four, whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to notice all, which means she had a bunch, to all her sons and daughters. So she had multiple multiple children but to hannah he would give a double portion for he loved hannah he had a strong affection and attachment to her relationally although the lord had closed her womb so whenever he would present his offering we've talked about this before as you would offer a sacrifice a lot of times the way sacrifice would be offered a portion would be burned upon the altar Sometimes a portion would also be given to the officiating priest or whoever was doing what they were doing. And then a portion was given to you as the worshiper together with your family. And the idea is it was kind of like a communal meal. You would celebrate and the idea is you were feasting with one another and with the Lord and it, it kind of enriched the fellowship time. So a portion of the sacrifice, it says, was given to him as the worshiper and he then would in turn go he would give portions to Peninnah and to all her children, but it says he'd give a double portion to Hannah. Why? 
because A, he loved her tremendously and his heart was broken. He felt bad. He was trying to compensate for her hurt feelings. He felt bad that she was brokenhearted because of her struggle with infertility and her barrenness. So he was trying to give her additional portions to help lighten the load and sort of ease some of the pain. And as I said before, we have to understand barrenness to those people in that day, it was perceived by many, truly, it was perceived wrongly, but perceived as a curse upon your life. And here's part of the reason why. It in the scripture is very evident when you read the Bible, Psalm 127 and other places, the Bible teaches that God says that children are a gift from the Lord. They're a blessing. The Bible says they're a reward. The fruit of the womb is a reward from the Lord. So because God clearly stated in his word that children were a gift, a reward, a blessing, to not be able to have children, it was then wrongly concluded, and I emphasize wrongly concluded, well, if you can't have children or I can't have a child, then there must be something wrong with me. And so therefore, God's curse must be upon my life. And wrongly and painfully, people would give that stigma to people. There must, there must be something amiss in your life, some sin or lack of belief or you're not right with God. And so the, the scourge of God was upon your life. And so it was a horrible stigma on top of a heartache. It was a horrible stigma to experience barrenness in this culture. And Hannah was dealing with all these things. As I said, longing to have a child. It was the strong desire of women in that culture to be a mother above every other achievement. And that's really somewhat, let's be honest, that's kind of hard for us to fully associate with, especially today in our Western civilization. Because in our Western civilization today, in our current generation, I wish I could say that the strongest aspiration of every young girl growing up is that she just wants to be a mother and have a ministry of being a mom above everything else. Unfortunately, in our culture today, in the way we're even priming and shaping a lot of our young people of what is important, what isn't important, a lot of times we're, in a sense, cultivating and said, no, success and achievement and career, and you've got to compete with everybody else. And it's almost like, well, if I have time, then, yeah, maybe eventually I'll have a child. Or if we can afford it, then we'll have a child. Or if we have a child, then that's okay. But, I mean, that child's not going to hold me back from you know, being here or there in the corporate world. And, and we live, let's just be very honest, in kind of a different culture today, where in this day, their highest aspiration was, I just want to be a mom. I just want to raise a child. I want to, I want to invest and pour my life's work and endeavors into... And it was, it was a special privilege to them. It was their primary concern, their chief ambition. So you have to grasp that to understand how painful it would be to be barren and to not be able to have a child and to have this stigma and stereotype wrongly kind of cast upon you as well. It says that the Lord had closed, verse 5 her womb now again let me just say i don't know why that is and infertility and barrenness is a painful thing when a couple goes through it and she knew that it was her because obviously elkanah was conceiving and having children with penina so she feels the weight of all this and the pain of infertility is a horrible, horrible thing for a couple to have to work through. And then on top of that, you're saying, okay, here are people who are getting pregnant that don't even want a baby or aren't even going to take adequate care of a child. And here we are trying to do everything right and we want a child and we can't. 
And that's a very painful experience. But yet it says here in the Bible, the Lord closed her womb, which is interesting because in chapter four of Ruth, we read in verse 13, the Lord gave her conception. So for Ruth, we read the Lord gave her conception. For Hannah, we read, and the Lord closed her womb. Listen, both of them were godly women. I don't have the answers for why sometimes God may cause a person's womb to be closed and not able to conceive a child. I don't think we should ever have the audacity to try and answers like that and trying to figure out the sovereignty of God. What I do know is this, is that God is good and God is sovereign over those things. And we see in this story, God even had a purpose for what he was doing. And sometimes God may allow that for a higher purpose that's not yet seen until further down the road. And our part is to trust the Lord in the midst of that. But this would be a very hard thing to process and look as if it wasn't bad enough. Look what happens, verse 6. It says, in her rival, that's an interesting term for a fellow wife in the house, but that's probably like it becomes. Her rival also provoked her severely. And look, look why Peninnah did this. To make her miserable. That's enough right there to convince me to never want to have a second wife. because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year. Again, this wasn't just one time this happened. This was year after year after year. Every time they went up, it was just rubbed in her face when they would go up to worship at the yearly sacrifice and all be eating their meal and her kids running around and there was no kids for Hannah there eating her own double portion because she had no one to share it with. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her and therefore she wept and did not eat, didn't even have an appetite. Again, take notice here. Isn't it amazing how utterly cruel people can be? I mean, truly, think about this. How utterly cruel Peninnah is being to Hannah here because of her barrenness. Again, what was she doing? What was she saying? The Bible says she became her rival. It says she provoked her severely to make her miserable. So she was purposely doing things, saying things that just rub salt in her wounds and to make her pain even worse, to make her feel horrible about her situation, maybe you know, critical remarks and snide things she was saying and you know, doting on her own children. and Again, just being totally, not only unsensitive, but being cruel because of jealousy and a competitive drive. And boy, when people get jealous and competitive, it's amazing how nasty people can become. And what people can do to one another. And notice that even though it was hard and painful, Hannah, this is what I admire about her. Talk about being hard and painful to go up to the house of the Lord and worship. But even though it was very hard, very painful, she still went and worshiped God. She kept worshiping. And can I just say what a great lesson there the Holy Spirit sets before us. Because she could have said, it is just too difficult. I'm just going to isolate. I'm just going to stay away. It's too hard. It's too painful. I'm just going to weep if I'm there anyway. But even though it was hard, and it was, and it was difficult, that never made her restrain herself from going and worshiping the Lord. Through her pain, through her difficulties, through the questions she had. Hey, don't we sometimes have questions? We, like Hannah, are going, why, God? Why? I don't understand what's so different about me. Why is this missing in my life? Or why is this this way in my life? And yet this person, Lord. And why? And and why me? But yet in the midst of that, she's still there. She's still worshiping the Lord. 
and weeping over this situation. She can't even eat. Well, verse 8, this is certainly a fitting picture of husbands. Elkanah, her husband, then says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Well, that's already probably a really bad question. It's one of those kind of things, if you don't know why I'm crying by now, I mean, just, why do you not eat? Why is your heart so grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Oh, that's a real good idea there. Man, I mean, you got me. What's the matter with you? Why, why, are, you, why are you so upset? And, and, I mean, everybody needs to eat. I mean, why aren't you eating? And, and what's he doing here? I mean, quite honestly, he's trying to do the best job he can to be compassionate. But he's falling drastically short, as often we do as men, comforting his wife in the midst of her heartache. And rather than be sensitive and really try and dwell with understanding with her and relate to her as she may have need and her brokenheartedness and as she's hurt and wounded, instead, he's just kind of offering some male logic and he's trying to just throw out some quick solutions, fix the problem, make it go away instead of just being discerning and being understanding. And this is rather unfortunate. I think as men, we all at times can be drastically guilty of this here, not really showing much compassion or helping comfort her by proposing ideas that really weren't going to resolve the situation at all. And I think from this, there's a great reminder to us as men. We have to be careful and sensitive. There's a reason why First Peter 3.7 is in the Bible about dwelling with our wives according to understanding as a weaker vessel, being, you know, uh, in a sense, sensitive to realize that you, you, you know, I, I'm doing counseling right now uh, with a, a young couple, uh, you know, she's 19, he's 24, and, and, and talking to them and just reminding him uh, when we were talking last time, I said, look, here's the deal, man. You, you can't ever treat her like one of the guys. It just, it doesn't work. It just You can't talk to her like one of the guys. You can talk, you know, guys can talk a certain way and, and say certain things and, 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 and it just, we don't take it personal. Our feelings don't get broke. You know, we're, we're not, it doesn't impact us. To just whatever, okay, yeah. And, and guys, but men can do that because we have a male temperament and we're wired differently. And I said, listen, you always have to remember, you can't treat her just like she's just one of the guys. And you can't talk to her just like she's one of the guys, because she's not. She's a lady. She's built different. She's wired different. And that's hard for us as men sometimes because we don't always take that into consideration. And I think in some ways Elkanah here was kind of erring in that way a little bit. But look what Hannah does. This is tremendous wisdom again. She doesn't get bitter and snap at her husband. She doesn't rebuke him or get upset. She doesn't even feel like you should be able to solve all my problems. What she does, watch this. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So what does she do? She realizes, you know what? My husband can't solve all my problems. My husband can't meet every need in my life. He can't even take care of every little situation. And rather than be upset and angry and have an unrealistic expectation towards her husband, she realizes, you know what? I need to go work this out with the Lord. I need to go to the house of God. And I need to pray this through and weep this through and work this through. And I need to let the Lord help me process this because 
he's the only one that can help me resolve what's going on in my heart. He's the only one that can help me with the pain and the struggle and the questions and the confusion and my heartache over this. And, and she very wisely, this woman of God, she says, I'm just going to go to the house of the Lord and just seek him and work this through. And she's there praying to the Lord, verse 11. And then it says, as she's praying, it says, she made a vow and said, look at this vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and do not forget your maidservant but will give your maidservant a male child then she says if you answer this prayer I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head now remember that idea the inference there no razor shall come upon his head is a reference to number six the Nazarite vow where someone would be fully dedicated over to the service of God and the ways of God, consecrated fully to God. And as a part of that, uh, they would refrain from cutting the hairs, an outward indication of this life of dedication and commitment over to God. That's what she's inferring there. But I want you to see what's happening here. P please don't miss this because there's something very beautiful. This woman comes to a place in prayer where she makes a vow now to surrender her child, if God honors her prayer and gives her a male child, she says, God, if you give me a son, she says, then I'm telling you, I will give that son over to you in full dedication to serve you and to serve your purposes all the days of his life. And that son will be raised and given to the full dedicated work of God in any way that you want to use him. And here's what's so incredibly profound. Her prayer now comes into alignment with the will of God. And now she's praying a prayer. She's praying for a son. But through the struggle and through the delay, why God? Why have I been barren for years? And she's praying it through and processing it through. And she's praying, God, answer this prayer. When is it going to happen? When are you going to bring this to pass? And the delay, the, the, the time frame of it not being fulfilled, not being answered, even the struggle, the barrenness, that was all used by God to allow time for this woman's heart to come into alignment with the heart of God, which was, what, what did God need? God needed at this point in history a man who was fully dedicated to the things of God in such a way that he could be used to bring a spiritual renewal and be a spiritual pillar in the nation. And it's a really hard thing for a mother to give up their child completely, but, but this is what God needed. And now she comes to a place where her prayer actually is exactly the prayer that God wanted to be prayed. And God says, I've been waiting for someone to pray that prayer. And now all of a sudden, the struggle, the strain, the delay, the heartache, the problems, the disappointment, all of a sudden, all that was being used in such a way. Why, why, why? Well, here's the reason why. The reason why was to give time for a person's heart to come in perfect alignment with the heart of God so they would pray a prayer in sincerity and purity and God would say, yes, that is exactly what's been on my heart. And now someone's heart is in alignment with it. And as she prays this prayer to God, I imagine there's probably almost a sense of pleasure that comes over the face of God that she would give her child to God in this way. Verse 12 says, And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord 
that Eli the priest watched her mouth and Hannah spoke in her heart. In other words, she wasn't articulating the words out loud, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli the priest thought that she was drunk. Now, that's kind of a bad testimony of what maybe he saw in the temple once in a while or the tabernacle. Why would he think somebody is, is drunk uh, in the house of the Lord instead of praying? But it's possible, as I said, these were very dark times. And when you see Eli's two sons who were priests as well and what they were involved in, uh, it could be that this was kind of a routine occurrence. So here she is praying. Her lips are moving, but she's praying in her heart. She's not articulating the words out loud. Eli thinks that she's drunk. So he says to her, verse 14, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, he doesn't exactly have a whole lot of sensitivity either. Seems this is a real evidence. The Holy Spirit keeps indicating male lack of sensitivity throughout this passage here. He rebukes her for being drunk when she's pouring her heart out praying to God here. He falsely accuses her. He has no discernment here. And he challenges her. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink. She said, I'm not drunk, but I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now, notice the sadness here. Eli, who was the priest at that time and a leader in the house of the Lord, instead of being discerning, instead of helping people in compassion and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, this guy is so out to lunch, loves his position, but has no idea what the practice of real ministry means. And so here, in total lack of discernment, he's treating people horribly. I mean, he treats her. Here's a woman whose heart is raw and broken, and she's pouring out her soul in the house of the Lord, and he goes up to her and treats her like almost like an inhumane in, you know, way and is brutal with her and, and just wounds her tremendously, rebukes her, possibly even publicly. We don't know who else heard her. and says, what's the matter with you? What are you, drunk? in here do, acting foolish like that and challenges her and, and kind of really just in this very unkind way treating her harshly and again this is supposed to be a, a minister in the house of the Lord this is supposed to be a spiritual leader of such a sad sad indication when someone who can be in spiritual service and yet completely miss the point of spiritual service which is to help people to encourage spiritual growth, to uh, be someone to assist and to minister and be sensitive and compassionate to people in need. And Eli just completely demonstrates the opposite here. But notice in Hannah's wording of her prayer here, I think, what sincere heartfelt prayer looks like. To pray a prayer in alignment with the will of God, and we know that's what this is. She's praying in alignment with the will of God. It says in verse 13 that she spoke in her heart, though she wasn't articulating the words outwardly. And I would say this, what's sincere, heartfelt prayer supposed to look like? What is praying a prayer in alignment the will of God supposed to look like? Well, first of all, I would say this, it's communication from the heart. From the heart. She wasn't articulating the words, she was just kind of moving her mouth, but she was praying from the depths of her heart. And can I just say, sometimes people use a lot of words and their heart's not engaged. And there are other times where people may not use the most perfect words, but they're praying from their heart. They're praying from their heart. You know, it, it, it's a sad thing to, at times, even think of how, on occasion, you know, people put more of a concern and an interest in, in what it sounds like. 
Well, I need to sound a certain way when I pray. Well, then you're not really praying. Prayer is genuine, heartfelt communication with God. It's not an opportunity to preach a sermon in a prayer meeting. So people go, wow, I was blessed by your prayers. Mm. No, are we talking to God or are we preaching indirectly in front of one another? She's praying from her heart. Notice as well, it says down in verse 15, she says, I've poured out my soul unto the Lord. That's prayer. Just pouring out your soul to the Lord. Just telling God what's in the depths of your being. Openly expressing your inner feelings and thoughts. Just sincere communication to God. This is genuine prayer. This is heartfelt prayer. It comes from the heart. Just, and this is what God wants. Pour out your soul to me. Tell me deep calls under deep. What's in your heart? Just say it. Your inner thoughts, your feelings, just expressing to God. That's why I love to read the Psalms because there's just such beauty of emotion and honesty when you read the Psalms. I mean, I, I'm so thankful that I can read the Psalms and I read David praying and say, God, just break their teeth, God. And you go, wow, whoa, 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 David. That don't sound too good in a prayer meeting. But that's how he felt. Did God answer his prayer? Of course, God is not breaking people's teeth for him. But I think God is saying, thanks for being honest, David, because I know you feel like that anyway. You're angry. Get some of your anger off your chest. <laughs> Pour out your soul, David. Say what you need to say. Process it. You know, I, that's sometimes how it is. We were, uh, uh, Chris and I, yesterday at the uh, Brandywine uh, elderly home, and there was a lady afterwards who wanted to talk about half hour, and she was talking, and she was going on and on and on and on and on and on, and we were trying to be compassionate and, and listen to her. And then at the end of it, she just said, you know what? She, she said, boys, I don't even know why I'm telling you all this. She said, but I tell you something, it just feels good to finally be able to just say all this stuff. You know, and I think with the Lord sometimes, one of the beautiful things about prayers, you can just pour out your soul to the Lord and just tell God honestly. And there's something about that kind of genuine, heartfelt prayer that's very sincere. And these are the kind of prayers that I think God is saying now. You're praying from your heart. This is sincere prayer. It's coming from the heart. It's genuine requests. It's sincere concerns, saying what we really are desirous of or feeling. And God can work with that because he says the, the transparency of our hearts. Well, verse 16 says, Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, she then continued, for out of the abundance of my complaint, she says, and grief, this is what I'm doing, pouring out my heart, until now. And Eli then answered, he probably felt a little sheepish at that point, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you've asked of him. So she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. So Eli says, hey, you know what? I, I stand corrected. May God honor your plea. May God grant you your request. And, and he just sort of pronounces a, a blessing, a, a, a prophetic word. May God give you the desire of your heart. And she took that as a, a prophetic word from the Lord. It says that she walked away, went away and ate, verse 18 says, and she was no longer sad. The idea is her countenance changed. Why? Because her heart was stirred in faith and she felt like God's heard my prayer. And in faith, she the idea is, why be sad anymore? God's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it, but God's going to do it. And that, that's an attitude of faith in prayer. God heard my heart. 
This man encouraged me. May God honor your prayer. We know that we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. And so she goes away now in an act of faith. She's joyful. She begins to eat, believing God's going to work. And verse 19 says, And they rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. Again, take notice there. This is before the prayer request is given. She doesn't have a son yet, but she rises early. She's worshiping the Lord expectantly. Why is she worshiping the Lord? She doesn't have a reason to worship God because of what he did in her life. She's worshiping the Lord just because of who he is. She gets up early and she says, Lord, I don't exactly know how this is all going to work out, but you are worthy to worship because of who you are. And that's a good reminder for all of us. We shouldn't just worship the Lord or go worship the Lord or give praise and honor to the Lord if it's not hard and life's not difficult and there's not pain and problems in our lives. Hannah shows that that's wrong. She worshiped. And we shouldn't only worship the Lord if he does for us what we want him to do for us. We should worship the Lord just because of who he is. And let him be sovereign over our lives. So she gets up early. They go, they worship the Lord. And then it says they returned and went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, the biblical description of sexual relations and intimate knowing of one another in the deepest form. They had sexual relations. And the Lord remembered her. And it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked him from the Lord. And again, the word Samuel, the Hebrew of it, gives the indication God hears uh, or having heard what I asked. And so she calls him Samuel, asked of or heard of the Lord. Now, Elkanah says, and all his house went up to the Lord to the yearly sacrifice and his vow. Again, notice the emphasis, as I said earlier, verse 21, Elkanah and all his house. I love that. Elkanah and all his house, it says, they went up to offer sacrifices and worship to the Lord. I love, again, this beautiful example there of Elkanah being someone who didn't just worship and serve the Lord himself, but he led his family to do the same. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to worship the Lord. If you're a part of my household, you're going with me to worship the Lord. And he led his family in this way by his example and by his leadership and guidance, they're there together worshiping the Lord. But Hannah says, verse 22, notice, because of this unique situation, this time, she did not go up. For she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned. And in that culture, typically, that was, so you understand, three to five years old. In that culture, when they would wean a child, it was more than just nursing and breastfeeding. It was also a, a nurturing and a pouring into the child's life in a special way as the mother bonded with them. So she says, not until he's weaned, then I'll take him up that he may appear before the Lord. Notice this, I have it underlined, and remain there forever. Wow. To go and bring him to the house of God and leave him there to serve the Lord all the days of his life. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she then took him up with her and three bulls and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought these up to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Again, at this point, he's about, as I said, maybe three to five years old at this time. And they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli, the priest, that is at the house of the Lord. And she said to Eli, the priest, oh, my Lord. As your soul lives, my Lord, I am that woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. She says, remember the one you thought was drunk. 
That was me. She says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. She says, this is a direct answer to prayer. This is what I prayed for. The Lord's granted my petition. I think we can all sometimes perhaps have the privilege, if it's not with a child biologically, to say something like that. This is what I prayed for, and the Lord did it. Look at this. Here's the evidence of God's answer to prayer. Therefore, I also, she says, and we'll see this in the chapters ahead, have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he shall be lent to the Lord. And again, it says they worshiped the Lord there. So when he comes to the age when it's appropriate, possible to be able to bring him again beyond some of the years where some initial things to happen, she in wanting to honor her vow to the Lord as an act of faith and obedience as a mother brings young Samuel up to the house of the Lord to present him to Eli the priest to be raised in the temple or the tabernacle service and the spiritual ministry and priesthood and is going to turn him over. And let me just say this in regards to the representation here of Hannah as a godly mother, which I think is a picture of godly parenting and certainly not just for mothers. But first of all, she sincerely viewed her child as a gift from the Lord. I mean, she sincerely had an attitude, this child's not a burden, they're not a tax deduction. They're not someone to keep track of so that I can pass my name. She truly viewed her child. This child is a gift. This is a gift from God given to me. And she dedicated her child to God's purposes and saw her parental role as a stewardship. He's lent to the Lord. The idea is she says, this child belongs to God first, me second. We need to have that attitude as parents. This child belongs to you first, Lord, and then only secondarily to me. I'm just a steward. They're just on loan to me till ultimately they're given fully over to you. And that wonderful attitude, and thirdly and finally, which I think is perhaps most important, is she was very intentional about raising her son, her child, to serve the Lord. She was intentional about it. In her mind, her mentality with raising this child was not, okay, it's a big responsibility of a child. If I can just keep him fed, out of trouble, out of jail, and, 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 and alive till he can leave and be somewhat stable, whew, I made it. And that's the attitude of a lot of parents in our world. Her mentality was completely different. She didn't want him just to be intelligent, educated, have some experience, and then be successful and comfortable and a kind of a good, stable boy in society. She intentionally raised her child and trained her child to walk with and serve God. That was her intention. Her primary concern was, I want this child to serve the Lord, to be useful for God, to have an impact on his generation. And you know what? It happened. It happened. God give us more parental heart attitudes like that. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray.